Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. It is a Friday, and every Friday we have the great pleasure and luxury of sitting down with the film guys with Filmically Perfect. Good afternoon. It's 19 minutes after 12 o'clock, and it is the very sixth installment of Filmically Perfect and a very special one today. Let me welcome J. Todd Anderson, film extraordinaire, artist, uh, filmmaker, film lover, and film uh, sort of just knowledgeable guy. Hello. <laughs> so, yes, I'm sorry. I sort of tapered out on the end. I wanted to say film knower. It's hard enough to follow Dave Chappelle. You're making it even tougher. But of course, our ratings are going to go up this week. We know. And I just to say ditto for George Williman and all those things and, uh, and film lover. Happy Friday. <laughs> Happy Friday. This is <laughs> funny. What a great day, indeed. Uh, we are listening to a tune from uh, your movie called My Mummy that uh, we're getting a little sneak preview of here today, but we'll have more. It's done by the Squirrel Nut Zipper guys. How about that? Tom, uh, Kim Mosher and Tom Maxwell, who did In the Afterlife Hell, the song, and quite a few other songs that you've heard. And, and the title of this song is Whistler's Mummy. Yes. So if you find yourself <laughs> whistling it later, uh, you will know that indeed... Uh, it is a catchy tune and one that we're getting the sneak preview of today. More on that. You guys got a film out called My Mummy. We'll find out more about that in weeks to come. But today is a very special edition. That song just puts you in a great mood. Doesn't, doesn't it? it? Listen to this. That just puts you in a great mood. Ha! 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 <laughs> Get off the desk. Come She's on. dancing on the desk again, George. Indeed. Very special edition of Filmically Perfect today. We're not technically reviewing a movie, but we're taking a second to sort of address some of the terms that we all hear when we talk and think about movies and uh, take a chance to pick your brains about some of the... Yeah, you know, when we do perfect movies, and uh, and I just got an argument this morning, which always pleases me, uh, <laughs> because we, t- we say we have rules, of course. And when, you, when these movies get made, they're made by certain people and factions and uh, different uh, technical responsibilities. But... We'll, we'll go into our rules again, so that way when you folks listen to us on every Friday, you understand why we're calling things a perfect film. So our, our films are, are deemed perfect because they create the world they exist in. Uh, they wholly sustain that world. And regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment value. <laughs> So pretty much, they, they, they create it, they they inhabit it, and it still has meaning after time. And regardless, if they're perfect, bad, good, they are hard to make. Movies are difficult medium to make because you're imitating life, and anytime you try to do that, everything slows down. And that means like three shots a day. and Hard to do and hard, even harder yeah. to do well. Yes. Yeah, yes. so filmically perfect. And It's uh, not only a craft, it's an art. If you, do we want to give a heads up about next week's film early on and remind them yeah. on the outro again? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, next week, we are going after uh, one of our favorites and a, a little more recent film, which hopefully more people are familiar with, uh, Groundhog Day, Bill Murray, uh, directed by Harold Ramis. This is an amazing film. picture. A really wonderful. Anybody you talk to, my life is Groundhog Day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows what you're talking about. That's right. But yeah. also, we would like to let, let people know that they can uh, contact us directly now. We have... Uh, an email address, and we will soon have a web presence for for the program. Very cool. Uh, our email address is filmguys, F-I-L-M-G-U-Y-S, at perfectmovie.com. 
net. All one word, no dots or spaces. How or about anything. that? Perfect film movie. guys at perfectmovie.net. Yes, then you'll be able to, you know, podcast all these show, all these uh, films that we have deemed perfect. Yeah. Um, all four or five of them. And a chance to shoot some questions. Maybe you had some uh, points to make about some of the past movies. Yep. Maybe you have suggestions about perfect music. Although again, it's up to the guys here. It's uh, it's your hard hard earned knowledge come to bear on what makes a perfect film. But you can make suggestions. You can ask questions, which is what we're about today. So you know what, George? Yes. They say that Nikki wants to know. Okay. Nikki, what does Nikki want to know? <laughs> Tell us. I've heard that Nikki know. wants to know. I have some. I like that. Let's do Nikki wants, Nikki to, wants to know. I have a very uh, some basic questions that I know probably are fundamental to anyone. The answers works. to those questions are yes, yes, no, and yes. <laughs> and 42. Anyone who's worked in film. I tell you what. I used to sit until the very end as like some sort of a bizarre nervous tick that I had until I saw who. And it, I never remembered who. But who was the gaffer? Okay. What I want to ask you is what is a gaffer? Gaffer is the chief electrician on a movie. Um, okay. These are the people that are responsible. They, they, they report directly to the director of photography, who is in charge of all the photography you see on the film. Um, and that person, the, the director of photography says, we got to light this whole side of the mountain over here. Okay. And this side's going to be dark. And so the electrician, the gaffer, um, he goes out and he specs this all out. Why to, gaffer? Do you happen to know the origin of that because term? Because my understanding is, is and all these things are steeped in lore, you know, because yeah. they just make the, like all movies, nobody knows anything really. Um, it was because of the gaffer poles that they used to adjust the lights. Oh, okay. All now right. remember back in the old days, um, they used to have these things called arc lights. And nowadays they have much more modern lighting. But arc lights are like those spotlights they used to use in World War II that have the welding rod that goes in there. And they, would, they were that bright. They could light up the sky and shoot down bombers. So when you think of like striking an arc, it's that it's That's like it. that And hot. when they come it's on, we used them on Raising Arizona. Mm. Uh, it was the very first movie I worked on. We were out in the desert because they throw an immense amount of light. I mean, they can cover territories. But they they, they grind up a rod and they're heavy, they're big, and, and they're they hot. And they've got to be hot. Yeah. And Back in the old days, on old movie sets like Wizard of Oz and everything, they had these inside, too. And every light had an electrician. Every light, these arcs had an electrician because the ASA, tell them what the ASA is, George. On the film, back then, the, um, the, the film speed or, or how sensitive the film was to the light was could be anywhere between 1 to 10. That's amazing. You can buy stuff in a store that's 1,000 just for your handheld mm -hmm. camera. And wow. So they, especially if, it, like on Wizard of Oz, if they're shooting something in, in color, you know, you needed to, as, as we will hear later, you need a lot more light. So, yeah, you'd have all huge ranks of, of uh, arc lights going. So they had to have this amazingly bright light to, yeah. uh, to feed this film, and the gaffer that was gaffer in charge. That gaffer was in charge of all that, and then he's still the same way. He sends it to his best boy, and sometimes it's his best okay, woman. Okay, now let's um, get to that. What's best, best boy? Woman. That's the first assistant to the gaffer. Okay. Um, and then that person will tell the grip electrics where to, to, they're the army of people that put this stuff up. There's grip camera and grip electric. And it goes gaffer, uh, uh, best boy or best woman, uh, grips, grip electric. Grip. Grip now, electric. someone told me once that grip got that name because they're responsible for seeing that things stay in place. Yeah, I suppose. Put, put um, a grip on it. I always thought because they're always hauling stuff. I mean, those cables uh, are heavy, and the cables they use are very, very heavy. And uh, if you lug one of those around for about 15 minutes, you'll find out why they call them grips. Because, uh, and those guys are strong, you know, they, uh, and they move fast. They move very fast, and they're very well paid because they work very, very hard. And there's a lot of grips on movies, and they swing quite a lot bit, which means you Suspended. can have a, two or three different guys. You know, not like the... Uh, 
the flying monkeys or anything like that. No. <laughs> or that guy on that telephone commercial. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> they they can come on. There's so many grips out there in Hollywood that they have uh, people with different grips come on every day because they can swing and do different movies. But the gaffer and the uh, best boy, they're pretty much attached to the picture and yeah. it's up to them um, and that's the way that works there's always a lot of grips on that like movies that have a lot of night work outside there's a lot of lights for that. a lot of lights a lot of gaffers best boys and, and this grips. is all this is all really interesting to me as well because i always thought the gaffer was the guy who was hired to be to blame for all the mistakes <laughs> on a film set no that's a producer oh after the movie failed <laughs> Or the director. <laughs> or the director's wife. <laughs> Which brings us to another turn. Now, see, that that, take, that wipes out three of my big big ones. The, I guess the we're gaffer, okay, the best go. boy, and the grip. But here's one, because uh, I have come... Nikki to, wants to know. Through my experience with you, I want to know uh, what exactly... You see, you said something so interesting and cryptic and cool to me, and that is that actually The Wizard of Oz was shot... In black and white. Oh yeah. Um, Which brings us to to Technicolor. Technicolor. Um, Glorious Technicolor. Yeah. It it surprised me too when I when I first started working with the films uh, for Library of Congress and learned about how Technicolor works. Um, It's one of the things I love to tell people that yes, all these great color films that we all love, Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain. Um, were all actually shot in black and white. There was no color film used in their creation. And this is where Technicolor comes in because Technicolor is to movies like lithography is to printing. The blending yeah. of three colors, isn't exactly. that right? Yeah. Um, and it took a long time for them to get where they were and they almost went bankrupt several times trying to develop a system. But in the example of Gone with the Wind, when they shot the film, they use a specialized camera, the special Technicolor camera that's enormous. Yes, the size of a refrigerator. Literally, the size of a refrigerator. And in this camera, they would load three rolls of black and white film stock. And as it ran through, they all ran through together, uh, the light would enter through the lens like normal, but would hit a prism that would split it off into two directions. And on one side, I don't remember exactly how the color set up, but on one side, you'd have one strip of film, and it would be collecting like the green data and then on the other side you'd have two strips collecting the red and blue data so when they go back to the lab they would process them and they'd be three black and white negatives but if you look at them next to each other the black and white areas differ so that basically they would then take and they would make these what they call matrices which are like big rolls of film but they were actually printing plates they would imbibe these with ink. They would roll ink onto these with different ink. colors. Not Printers vegetables. Ink. That's right. Ink. Heavy. Uh, uh, make, um, That's why they still look good today. And they would um, they would lay these images onto the film like printing pictures in a book. Amazing. And that's Amazing. why you may be watching one of these movies and say, wow, that, that color is just very, very, very beautiful. That's because uh, it's... It looks different it, because it is different because it is technicolor. And it, it's much more... It just... It really, really sings when you look at it because the color temperatures are so bright and so rich, and the emulsion is real slow. So it it has this like pastel effect when you're watching it. And a lot of movies, like you know, The Searchers, we I sure think, yeah. No, yeah, the um, girl can't help it. And I know that for a fact the Wizard of Oz, but uh, what else is a real famous Technicolor movie, George? Oh gosh, I mean, any of the great color musicals that were made in the 30s and 40s, uh, Cover yeah, Girl. What, what was the time span um, on Technicolor? Because they don't the, use it anymore. No, the the Technicolor as we know it kind of runs from well, the first one was Becky Sharp 
which was made in, I think, came out in 35, I believe. Very expensive process for the studio. And then it ran until the early 50s when uh, Kodak introduced Eastman Color Negative, which allowed them to use a standard camera and they could shoot actual color negative. Now, a lot of the studios would still take that color negative and have Technicolor make the black and white separations and then make color oh, prints from that. Oh, wow. But again, did that have the same result? I mean, you just didn't um, get those vivid colors yeah. or did you lose out? No, actually, yeah, that you still have the same effect. Yeah. Um, but finally, I think cost kind of drove them down uh, to going to just, just uh, color that was in the film. You know, um, yeah. And when you get into the late 50s, then they've pretty much... A few a few prestige films still kept uh, using the I old process. I think The Godfather was one of the last It was either ones. Godfather or Godfather uh, 2 was that's the why last they, one that, to use it. They, the, and that color will not fade either. It never fades. It's Isn't that amazing? It's just as dense and rich as a day. It's like, kind of like Kodachrome. If you see your old Kodachrome movies that your father shot, um, they're... Color temperatures are very rich, very solid. They just don't fade, you know? We're talking to J. Todd Anderson and George Williman, the film guys on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. And uh, today we're having a little fun with answering some questions, some burning questions that maybe we've all had in our minds about uh, some movie terms, some movie aspects. Speaking of which, I want to get to aspect ratio because one of the things that I learned from you guys is that... um, I think it was George who pointed out that, or maybe you, J. Talking about the silent thing. Yeah, that silent film was in a widescreen, but when they went to color it first, it had to move over. And tell us why that was. Well, um, the silent, silent... An aspect ratio is the square you watch the movie What, what the relative dimensions, yeah, right? Wide, oblong. Lots of times on these new TVs, you get a movie and they stretch people out of whack to get widescreen. It puts like 20 pounds on every person, you know, all of a sudden they got big foul Everybody's fat faces. short and fat, People yeah. don't realize just because you have widescreen does not mean that that's the way you should see it. All of a sudden people will be very, very heavy. Right? <laughs> um, in the silent era, the when they finally standardized things, they kind of settle on an aspect ratio that we call four, four to three. Um, and and it's, it's sort of a, it's a very much a rectangular shape. Uh, but when sound came in, they had to put the soundtrack somewhere. And when they started out with the, the Vitaphone system that used the sound on the records, they could still continue using the silent aspect, aspect ratios. And how was that then? They would start them simultaneously mm-hmm. and hope that each they of the mechanisms was... They had a projector that had a built-in turntable. Oh. And there were marks on both the film and on the record. There were arrows as to... You put the arrow frame yeah. in front of the opening. Huh? Talk about opening. hands-on. Yeah, and then you'd put the needle right <laughs> next to the arrow on the record, and then you'd start them, and they were locked together. And yes, they often did go out of sync, I'm and it was sure. a real, it was a real pain, <laughs> uh, which is why it didn't last very long. Right. Um, but when they finally <laughs> decided to go more toward uh, sound on film, where the the soundtrack ran, runs down the the edge of the film, they had to move the picture over slightly, so they lost some of that image, and went to more what they uh, call 1.3 to one. It's almost a perfect square. In fact, if you can see the films from the 30s and 40s properly shown, the picture will look almost perfectly square. Okay. And it's kind of it's kind of disconcerting to us today because we're not used to that shape. Now, what is the ramification of all this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Oh yeah, um, me too. <laughs> because it's perfectly square, directors tend to compose their pictures that way. If you watch the original Frankenstein movie, you'll notice that they built that movie around the aspect ratio because Frankenstein is very very tall. Yeah. And this castle is very. You notice all the sets and everything. The doors are very tall. Uh, and it's all because of the aspect ratio being very, very tall. Yeah. And you see movies nowadays where they, they, they want the best of both worlds, which of course you can't get that unless you like shoot through a doorway or something. Uh-huh. You know, and that'll give you, that'll narrow up your aspect which ratio. Which we've learned through some of the perfect movies. Is yeah, a like very The Searchers is what I always tell people to go watch as far as using aspect ratio correctly. 
um, because it's, it's ultimate widescreen. And uh, a lot of times you don't really need widescreen. Wide uh, for instance, like like I say about Frankenstein, um, if you put the camera down low, then it even gets taller. Yeah. And that aspect ratio will help you out. Which addresses a couple of more points. So so they had to narrow it to accommodate the, and I'm right, J. Todd, it's optical soundtrack, optical right? Optical soundtrack. That's so, uh, it would be a amazing. series of lights that the projector would somehow read and transfer into sound. I can't even pretend to understand how that would happen. Yeah, we can do we can do more about that let's later. Let's do it that. Is, but then let's complex. talk about how they finally figured it out. Because think about the, the searchers, which again is in widescreen, wide but screen. does have sound so right. somehow they managed well, to juggle in, the in, two in in the widescreen films there were lots of different ways of doing the sound um and 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 actually the interesting thing about widescreen there's there's only one reason why they started making widescreen movies in the 50s because most of those processes were available in the teens and 20s also but there wasn't any reason for it in the 50s television came along mm. and you had to get some way to get people out of their house to go to the movies so Wide you see right, widescreen uh, panavision stereo sound well panavision color. is kind of a misnomer because widescreen like when you're talking about scope cinemascope those are a series of lenses they're they're very complicated to go on the front of the camera and what that does is use every inch of that emulsion on the negative to get it widescreen because when you look at the film it's all distorted it has to go through a special lens for you to interpreted even at the movie theater <laughs> but panavision and uh, super panavision is just where they take an aspect plate that just goes over the projector and it cuts off the top and the bottom of the film and makes it widescreen so if you have a careless projectionist and they take that plate off you can see grips arms hanging down and lights hanging down and Ooh. things like that i, I mean, always love those little it's a little metal plate yeah. goes right over the uh, the projector and uh, when you're shooting your movie, you've got little lines edges. in your viewpiece, and that tells you where you're supposed to stay into, you know. So uh, widescreen isn't always widescreen. It's just the way you're watching it, you know. Just a few questions answered on this edition of Filmically Perfect. I'm talking with the film guys. That's J. Todd Anderson and the one and only George Williman, all of them together, um, making a little something, a little notion of that there is a perfect film. This week, just questions and answers, but next week, let's, uh, first of all, tell me again your uh, email address, if you would. Oh, uh, yes. It's filmguys at perfectmovie.com. Net. Jay Todd Anderson, George Williman, thank you. Nikki, it's always a pleasure. Always. We're doing Groundhog's Day next time around, so uh, if someone at home were thinking about watching it and had been thinking, go ahead and do that, and we'll meet back here next Friday and talk about it. It's Filmically Perfect on WYSO. Gentlemen, as always, a treat. We go out with... The with oh excuse me Whistler's <laughs> Mummy by, by Ken Mosher and Tom Maxwell formerly uh, formerly of the Squirrel Nut Zippers right. Check from it out. the from the upcoming release My Mummy and we will talk ask for it yeah <laughs> Dante Forshana Juva <laughs> Latin for buy the movie thanks kids. <laughs>